time we're going to start looking at smaller structures and landmarks. So we'll start with our bigger landmarks and then we'll move on to the smaller structures and put them in a little bit of context. So first, let's look at the lateral surface of the brain here. And pretty much everything you can see on the lateral surface is going to be cerebral. So we'll reflect on those lobes that we talked about before. We talked about the frontal, parietal, temporal, and our occipital lobes. They've drawn an extra one on here, but you can't really see it from the lateral surface. You've got to dig down inside the lateral fissure here if you want to really see it. I'll show you how you do that in just a little bit. But our landmarks here for the frontal lobes, let's, let's see if we can identify some of these. Some of these are very clear and generally pretty unambiguous. You'll any, basically, any old picture, any old brain you pick up, you should be able to easily identify certain of these landmarks. Others are not so easy, and in some cases, some of them are imaginary. Does that sound spooky or what? So here, let's find our landmarks. There's our frontal lobe on the lateral surface. The posterior boundary is this large crevice called a central sulcus. So I'm going to want you to be able to pick out a central sulcus. That one's one of the obvious ones you should be able to find. And another one, a little bit ventral and anterior, we're going to be looking for our lateral fissure or our lateral sulcus. Again, this one actually is the more obvious of the two. So those boundaries, you should easily be able to identify those just taking a glance at a picture or a specimen. Now, I'm going to jump all the way to the back end here and then fill in the stuff in between. At the back end, that's where we find our occipital lobe or the lobe that's going to help you to see. And the boundary here, this is one of those imaginary ones. And the imaginary boundary here, you have to find some structures that, and you just kind of draw by freehand a line between them. We're going to look on the lateral and ventral surface here. There's a little indentation, sometimes obvious, sometimes not and it's called the preoccipital notch. And on the medial surface, you just kind of peek around into the medial aspect of the surface, and you should find a crevice called the parieto-occipital sulcus. So find those landmarks, and then just draw a little line between the two of them. So you'll see it's a dashed line here to indicate that we don't really know exactly where it is. That boundary is going to be the anterior boundary of the occipital lobe on the lateral surface. And we're going to use that then as our posterior boundary of our parietal and our temporal lobes. Now the anterior boundary of the parietal lobe here, easy to understand because it butts right up against our frontal lobe, so we'll again use that central sulcus. Again, you should be able to find that. And then, oops, more imagination comes into play here because somewhere right around here we're going to make a transition from our parietal down into our temporal lobes. And this one is completely at your pleasure. Somewhere up here, maybe travel about four-fifths of the way up this lateral fissure and go horizontally, and that's our boundary. So what that basically means is, on an exam, you're not going to have a dot there and a dot there and be asked to tell which one is in the parietal or temporal lobe. It doesn't help you to know those sorts of things. If you're going to be asked to identify a lobe, it'll be, ooh, look at this big thing here. That's part of what lobe. So it'll be... A, Unambiguous is basically what I'm getting at. You don't have to worry about the exact locations of these little lines. So that's our lateral surface. And now let's take a look inside that crevice, the lateral fissure. We looked at this picture before. And if we're looking at this coronal section, there is our lateral fissure. So that means this is temporal lobe down below. But if you crawl inside, you'll find more cortex inside. And that corresponds to that insular lobe.
Here's a dissection that's going to show it. What we've done is we just stuck a retractor on the temporal lobe here and given it a pull. And then we've scraped away or carved away some of the tissue of the parietal and frontal regions. And now if you gaze down into that expanded lateral fissure, you can see the insula down there. It's hidden away deep in that lateral fissure. So that's the insular lobe or the insula. Okay. Relating to last session we had. Try this one. See if you can identify that picture. So we're just trying to get you to identify the technique used to produce that picture. Okay, one or two more responses coming in. And let's try this one. What do you think about this? And it looks as though most everybody is, well, you're divided, I guess, between CT and MRI. And some clues here. How good a structure is that showing? Is it showing a very nice resolution of structure or is it a little bit vague? It looks pretty good. So for that reason, I would certainly lean more towards MRI. And again, just depending on how you scale the brightness, etc. Uh, what you may tend to find is that if you, get, if you can scale things such that you can make out a little bit of structure on a CT, you'll find that the skull tends to show up very, very vivid white. And this is kind of dampened down and a little bit more subtle. So a couple of bits of evidence there are pointing at MRI in this case. So that's the choice that I would make on this. Now, let's look at the medial surface. And on the medial surface, we'll see some of those lobes we talked about already. Here we have the frontal lobe. And we've got to get a little arbitrary again uh, to an extent. But we are going to hunt for a sulcus that is fairly obvious. Take a look at this little guy who travels all the way around in a big arc. That is called our cingulate sulcus. There's his name up there. The cingulate sulcus is going to form kind of an interior boundary, I guess you could say, for much of the frontal lobe. We're going to follow that cingulate sulcus, but what we'll find is that sulcus kind of changes his mind and darts into the parietal area. But before it does that, we can draw a vertical line from that medial aspect of the central sulcus, if you can find that. Remember, that was the guy we wanted to be able to find on the lateral surface. Draw a vertical line down to our cingulate sulcus, and that's our posterior boundary for the frontal lobe overlapping with the medial surface. And as was our custom, let's jump to the back end. And we see some nice, obvious landmarks here. In particular, there's that parieto-occipital sulcus that we'd mentioned a few moments ago. It tends to be very obvious. So be able to identify him. We'll see another obvious landmark. This is not going to form a boundary, but I'm just going to draw your attention to it because of its importance. You should also be able to see a sulcus that runs more or less horizontally here. That's called the calcarine sulcus. I do want you to be definitely able to pick that one out very quickly on a map. And the reason for that is the tissue immediately surrounding that sulcus is vital for you to be able to see. That's the spot that sees things. So if you damage it, you're going to go blind. Now, let's continue with the boundaries here. We travel down to about the point where the calcarine sulcus meets the parieto-occipital sulcus. 
And from there, we're just going to draw a line laterally to that preoccipital notch that we again mentioned just a few moments ago. Those will be the boundaries on the ventral and medial surfaces corresponding to our occipital lobe. Then, the next thing, let's look at our parietal lobe. Our parietal lobe travels from that posterior boundary of the frontal lobe all the way back to our parieto occipital sulcus. The ventral boundary is more vague, though. So remember, we started off with this little boundary here called the cingulate sulcus. We're going to follow it. And then as we pass by the frontal lobe, instead of continuing to follow that sulcus, what we're going to do is use our imaginations once again, and we're just going to kind of make an arc all the way around to, again, about that junction point of the calcarine sulcus and the parieto occipital. And then we'll find another reasonably obvious sulcus. And that one is called our collateral sulcus. Now, if you put all those boundaries together, we wind up with our limbic lobe structures. So a little bit dorsal and posterior to that, that's where we'll find that parietal lobe. Lateral to that collateral sulcus, that's where we're going to find our temporal lobe. So those are boundaries that I want you to be able to identify in order to localize your lobes. Now let's look at the inferior aspect of the brain. This gets a little bit complicated here, but let's try to keep it reasonably simple. First, just start with the lobes. You'll notice that there's a crevice between the hemispheres. That's our longitudinal fissure, so we'll have a cerebral hemisphere on either side of that. Frontal lobe, we should be able to observe down in this location. So those are the frontal lobes there. Posterior to that, we're going to find temporal lobes, so down in the middle cranial fossa. In particular, take a note here. You should be able to see a kind of a jutting structure called the temporal pole. Now, a couple of things to note here. These structures are resting up against bone, and the surface is kind of blunt in the middle cranial fossa, and it's actually kind of rough. I don't know if you've played with many skull specimens, maybe in anatomy, but if you look at the anterior cranial fossa, the floor of that fossa is actually quite rough. So these are two areas that I want you to be thinking about. I want you to think about the ventral surface of the frontal lobe, and I want you to be thinking about the temporal pole. In particular, I want you to be thinking about that when somebody hits their head. Because basically what happens is, okay, here's somebody's skull, and brain does that inside the skull. So that rough surface in the anterior cranial fossa is going to act like sandpaper on this part of the brain. And usually the effects of that are going to be pretty obvious afterwards. We'll, we'll alert you to the clinical manifestations of that. But also the temporal pole here, that dives down into the middle cranial fossa, and, of course, the sphenoid wing is right nearby, and this part tends to take a big beating as well. Pretty much no matter which way you hit your head, those two parts of the brain are going to suffer a lot of trauma. So we continue with our temporal lobe. It's running posteriorly, but, of course, it gets hidden or concealed along with the occipital lobe by the cerebellum here. Now, you should also notice that we have... I'm going to point to it right here. Here we have a crevice. I don't know if you can follow that along, follow the cursor... That's our collateral sulcus. So that's that division then between our temporal lobe laterally and our limbic lobe. And we've got that illustrated there. Now, other structures, big ones to look for here. We've mentioned the cerebellum already. 
Remember that that's glued to the pons. The pons we can see very obvious here as part of the brain stem. And of course, the pons that's going to sit in between the midbrain. We can see a couple of pieces of the midbrain there. And then caudally, we're going to look for our medulla. So those are big structures. I want you to be able to start getting familiar with the terminology and start being able to pick those structures out on an atlas or on a specimen, maybe in your small group session. Now, let's look, and this obviously is a very important thing. Let's go through these structures again, but now link them up to cranial nerves, or at least uh, structures related to our cranial nerves. Now, here we have just a picture. It's a plastic model. You'll probably have something like this to see when you're dealing with your small group sessions. Here's the ventral surface of the brain. And what we'll see is a large structure up at the front here on the ventral surface, and it's called the olfactory bulb. Now, the olfactory bulb, in this, in this case, it's actually labeled as cranial nerve 1, but it's not really cranial nerve 1. Cranial nerve 1 punches from the nose into the skull and then interacts with the olfactory bulb. So that's actually the target for cranial nerve number 1. And in a presentation like this, we can't really show you all the little bundles of nerves forming cranial nerve number 1. But importantly here, these are derivatives of the telencephalon or the cerebrum. Now, if we travel a little bit posterior to that, wind up down in the diencephalon, we're going to see the cut ends of cranial nerve number two. So cranial nerve number two, remember, that was the oddball because he's still entirely part of the brain. So he's part of the diencephalon. We've chopped through the nerve here as part of our dissection process to enable us to get the brain out of the skull. But you'll notice he's also attached to a structure here, kind of an X-shaped structure that we call the optic chiasm. And probably Dr. Haig has mentioned things like the that this is in the vicinity of the pituitary. So one of the things to look for then with pituitary tumors is you're going to look for pressure being applied to cranial nerve 2 and disturbances of vision. Let's travel back into our midbrain area. We can't see a whole lot of the midbrain. It's kind of hidden. But we can see the crust cerebri on either side. And between the crust cerebri, what we're going to look for is cranial nerve 3 from either side in this interpeduncular fossa. So cranial nerve 3 right along the midline of the midbrain. Also from the midbrain, but much harder to understand, is cranial nerve 4. Cranial nerve 4 is an oddball because he pops off the back end of the brainstem. So where the heck is he? Oh, there he is way over there. All he's doing is he's reaching around from behind the brainstem and then he's going to wind up joining cranial nerve number three for travel through the superior orbital fissure in any event. So there's cranial nerve four, and he's going to join up with cranial nerve number three. They go side by side through the cavernous sinus. Let's go down into the pons. And attached to the lateral aspect of the pons, take a note of this, please. Here is the very, very large trigeminal nerve. So three big sensory branches of the trigeminal nerve there. And what do you notice anatomically? What's cranial nerve number five pushed up against? Okay, we're thinking the temporal structures. That's very, very good. Now, let's suppose that somebody is dealing with a herpes infection. And people don't always know they've got herpes. Where does herpes like to hide? It could sit here and brew in the trigeminal ganglia, maybe for decades. And then someday, for whatever reason, it springs to life. And where is this, situa where is this uh, ganglion situated? It's in the middle cranial fossa. 
It's this nice big dip. It's like a bathtub or a swimming pool. And this is where the herpes pool party is going to take place. Sounds very exciting. Better than sandblast. What do you mean? Uh. So what happens is there's herpes outbreak and this is the structure. The temporal lobes are often very, very badly affected by herpes virus. You'll wind up with a herpes encephalitis and in many cases that can be fatal. Now, all the way caudally and medially, right on the midline, cranial nerve number six, so another cranial nerve involved in control of the eyes. Now take a look, we're going to travel laterally along the junction of the medulla and the pons and sitting right together, cranial nerve seven and eight. They're going to sit in a little tiny area way off in the corner here called the cerebellopontine angle. And just something to note about the cerebellopontine angle, I want you to be thinking about tumor development in that area. It's a good target for a benign tumor that shows up and it can compress cranial nerve seven and eight in that area. So deafness, dizziness, maybe some facial weakness. Depending on how big you let the thing get before you treat it, you can affect other things as well. That's where cranial nerve number seven and eight are going to be. So that's, those are for our purposes. We're going to consider those as the pontine cranial nerve uh, structures. And now down into the medulla, we've got a string of cranial nerves running along this lateral aspect of the medulla. So 9, 10, and 11, we're going to look for them along the lateral aspect of the medulla. In particular, the, the area that we're going to investigate for these cranial nerves, we're going to look for the olive. I'm going to show you the side that doesn't have the drawings all over it. Uh, do you see there's a little bump on the side here with some cranial nerve fibers overlapping with it? Just around the corner, just around the back from that olivary structure, it's called the post-olivary sulcus. We're going to find cranial nerves 9, 10, and bits of 11. And just a little bit more ventrally, in the pre-olivary sulcus, that's where you'll find cranial nerve number 12. So that area then, obviously, very sensitive. Vascular disorders in there can cause quite a mess for cranial nerve operation. Now, let's look at the spinal cord, horizontal sections of spinal cord. We saw a picture that looked a little bit like this. We'll just try to look at it in a little bit more detail than we did the other day. Here is just any old section of the spinal cord. Let's just kind of chop through horizontally and examine it. And what we see here is, again, a nice little landmark right in the middle, and that is the central canal. Remember, that's the continuation of our ventricular system. It's extremely tiny. It's always exaggerated when they draw these pictures just to make sure you see it but it is a very tiny little structure. That's our central canal of the uh, ventricular system. Surrounding that, we've got gray matter. So we've got nuclei that are forming our bundles, or our, our gray matter structures in here. We had two horns to deal with. We've got a dorsal horn, and that's primarily sensory in nature. And then we've got a ventral horn down below, and that's primarily motor. So just knowing those things now, if you start developing little injuries overlapping with the spinal cord, you might be able to make a pretty good guess as to what kind of deficit you'd have. So somebody who has an injury up in this area, they'll have a somatosensory deficit. Someone with an injury down here is going to have a loss of muscular control. They'll go weak, overlapping with particular muscles. Now something else to note is that we need, obviously, to interconnect nuclei in the spinal cord with nuclei in other areas. And for that, we need tracts. 
And we've got three sets of tracks that I want you to worry about. Make a note of these, please. Way up top, we've got what we call the dorsal columns of the spinal cord. And these are going to be pretty much explicitly somatosensory in nature. They're sensory. You damage the dorsal aspect of the spinal cord, somatosensation will be disturbed. We've also got a lateral column of white matter. So lateral tracts out here. And these are going to be mixed in function. You'll have sensory, but also very important motor pathways through that particular area. In fact, that remember uh, we were talking a little bit about the corticospinal pathway. The biggest portion of the corticospinal pathway travels through this area. So damage to the lateral aspect of the spinal cord is going to produce some dramatic deficits in motor function, but also somatosensory function as well. And then last down here, we have a ventral column of white matter. And again, we'll have a mix of motor and sensory function. So those are things that I want you to be starting to look at with respect to spinal cord. Now let's look at spinal structures and relate them then to the surface structures, namely the meninges and other ligaments. So take a look at a picture like this. Let's identify a few things. Kind of faintly drawn in here in blue is our spinal cords. The spinal cord is going to sit in the middle. Remember, the spinal cord is a hemispheric structure, so you've got a right and the left side to it and a midline crevice. Tightly adhering to the spinal cord, you're going to look for the pia. So the pia is going to fuse together with the spinal cord. As we travel away from the spinal cord, we're going to look for a little gap. And the little gap is going to be created by cerebrospinal fluid under pressure that's contained on the inside by the pia and on the outside by the arachnoid layer of the meninges. So what are we going to look for? inside the subarachnoid space. Well, obviously, cerebrospinal fluid is what we think of, but I, again, want you to always be thinking of the subarachnoid space and blood vessels. So take a peek inside the subarachnoid space. I see blood vessel, blood vessel, blood vessel. So let's suppose that this guy has a rupture of one of these blood vessels. What kind of a hemorrhage has he just had? It's a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we think of subarachnoid hemorrhages. We're always thinking about the head, but you can have subarachnoid hemorrhages involving the spinal cord as well. And then, of course, the blood is going to spill out, and it's very irritating to the sensory receptors related to your meninges, and so pain is going to be a, a big consequence of that rupture. Now, fused together with the arachnoid, that's going to be our dura. So we'll have a single layer of dura in relation to the spinal cord, and it'll be fused together with the arachnoid. Now, other things to note here, we've got to get traffic going into the spinal cord and traffic coming back out of the spinal cord. So what I want you to do tonight when you go home, I want you to take your reflex hammer out. And I want you to find a friend. They may not be your friend for long, but I'd like you to find your friend anyway. And I want you to find each other's knees, and I want you to start beating each other with the hammer. What are you looking for as you beat each other with the hammer? Oh, go on, have a guess. You're just looking for reflexive responses. So what you do is you hit a tendon, it pulls on a muscle. How does the muscle react when you pull it? It contracts, so basically you have, maybe let's say, 
flexion in the opposite direction or extension in the opposite direction of the stretch. That's all you're trying to do with your hammer. Give it a try. It's a lot of fun. We'll show you some of the really weird reflexes. You're going to love those. So basically, all you're doing when you stretch that muscle is you have a sensory system, sensory neuron, sending a signal back to the spinal cord. And it's saying, oh my God, the muscle's just been stretched. And what it does is it talks pretty much directly to a motor neuron that goes straight back to the muscle and causes the muscle to contract. So what we have to do then is we have to make sure that we have this reflex arc intact, but you'll notice that we take advantage of the anatomy here. The sensory signal basically travels back along this nervous fiber. There's our dorsal root ganglion. Then the fiber has to punch through the dura, the arachnoid, subarachnoid space, pia, in towards the dorsal horn, all the way down into the ventral horn, talks to a motor neuron here. The motor neuron says, oh, I've got to go back in the opposite direction. I've got to go through the pia. I've got to go through the subarachnoid space, arachnoid, dura, follow the nervous fiber all the way back to the muscle, make the muscle contract. So as you take your hammer out and you hit your friend with it, you can very easily study the anatomy that we have represented there. It's a very quick way of dealing with uh, the studies. You can use your hammer, your flashlight, etc., to help you with those studies. Now here are some closer looks here. We have a little bit more realistic, I suppose. There's our spinal cord represented here. And that means pia surrounding that. Then we have our subarachnoid space. So remember, that was that stuff. We could fill that up with our radio-opaque dye, potentially. Contrast agent, if we're taking pictures. And then in that subarachnoid space, look for those blood vessels. And then we have our arachnoid and then we have this single layer of dura. And what you'll notice, of course, is that the meningeal layers that we're dealing with here, they also just travel right inside the head. So the pia of the spinal cord is continuous with the pia of the brain, and likewise the arachnoid and the meningeal layer of dura here, they'll travel inside the skull as well. Now, Ligaments. Let's take a look at our ligaments because we kind of want to give a little bit of security to the whole system here. Take a look. There's our spinal cord traveling down through that spinal canal. And that means it's surrounded by pia all the way down. We have subarachnoid space, the arachnoid layer, the uh, dural layer. But what you'll notice is that our subarachnoid space doesn't stop at the tail end of the spinal cord here, down at that conus medullaris. Instead, even though our spinal cord is going to end up around vertebral L1 or L2, the subarachnoid space is going to continue all the way down to around S2, vertebral S2. There's a big extension of subarachnoid space, and that's that space that we're going to try to hit when we're doing a lumbar puncture. But you'll also notice, in addition to a lot of nerves forming that horse's tail in the subarachnoid space down there, we're going to find a filament of pia. And this filament of pia is going to act an awful lot like a ligament. And what it's going to do is it's going to travel down through the subarachnoid space. And then as you get down to around vertebral S2, it punches outside of the subarachnoid space. It kind of fuses together with the arachnoid and the dura and can adhere to bony structures on the outside. And what that'll basically do then is it just kind of lends a little bit of security, a little bit of little tiny bit of tension 
is to kind of act like a little seat belt for the spinal cord. Now, that's a very good thing. We don't want the spinal cord wobbling around too much if we can help it. But at the same time, notice that things can go wrong there. You can have pathological adhesions of that ligament, that terminal filament as we call it, or phylum terminal. And if you do have those kind of adhesions taking place, as a person starts growing up, sometimes it occurs quite early or you see signs of it early, maybe three, four years old. In other cases, you might not notice problems until somebody is very close to their adult height. What happens is if you get one of these pathological adhesions on that ligament, is as the person is growing, you start getting more and more and more tension applied to the spinal cord. And that can result in pain, it can result in weakness, etc. So that's called a tethered spinal cord and it has to be surgically corrected. So that's significance of that particular ligament. Here we have kind of a photograph here to show you the ligament. If we're looking on the left here, we just see things as it kind of appears if you were glancing into the subarachnoid space. You'll notice that we have from the lower spinal nerves, they all join together and hang down like a horse's tail in the subarachnoid space. But if you kind of take a comb and brush the left ones and the right ones aside, you should see that terminal filament arising from the pia. So there it is right there. Now, let's look at the brain again. We're going to look at the surface of the brain now in relation to those landmarks that we talked about, but we're going to look at the smaller structures, and this, of course, is going to drive you absolutely crazy, which excites me to no end. Take a look at all the little bits and pieces, and you're thinking, oh dear, this weekend is going to be crap. Again, brings me enormous joy. Here, let's identify our frontal lobe. I'll show you the things that are particularly important that I want you to focus on. Remember that central sulcus landmark forming that posterior boundary of the frontal lobe? I want you to be able to find him and find that lateral fissure. Those are your big landmarks to identify frontal lobe. But now let's look at smaller pieces here. Take a look at this for me, if you wouldn't mind, on the lateral surface. Here we have what looks like oh, a little bump. And these bumps that we see on the surface of the cerebrum, those are called gyri. So every time you see a bump, it's called a gyrus. The first one you're going to run into, very, very clinically significant. We're going to be dealing a lot with this guy. Believe me, this one is called the precentral gyrus. So his posterior boundary is that central sulcus. And conveniently, the anterior boundary is the precentral sulcus. But in between those two landmarks is the precentral gyrus. And what I want you to know about this guy is that he is vital for your motor function. If you damage that particular gyrus, you are going to go weak. And remember we talked the other day how this is a nucleated structure and actually is interested in segregating its motor control over particular parts of your body. If you injure it, down around here, your face and your mouth are going to be disturbed as far as their motor function. You damage it up about here, your hand is going to suffer and your arm. Okay, so if, I, if you're dealing with somebody with weakness in the face and the arm, you, this is an area you might consider as possibly injured. So that's our precentral gyrus. Now, we've got additional gyrae up here. We've got a superior frontal sulcus, so it basically travels in the anterior-posterior plane, and it's located up along the midline of the frontal lobe. Next to that, 
just a little bit more ventrally and laterally, we've got a middle frontal gyrus. And I'm not even going to worry you with very discrete boundaries for these guys. You don't need to worry too much about that. Very important, though, I want you to be sure you know this guy. I want you to know the inferior frontal gyrus. We are going to be dealing a lot with the inferior frontal gyrus because of his importance, particularly if you're dealing with the left hemisphere. For most people, the inferior frontal gyrus is going to be vital for motor control over speech. So there are a couple of little segments down here that you'll, you'll hear about. There's a little area called the operculum, a little area called the triangle, and those will be most important for motor control of speech. If somebody has an injury related to this area, then what you can anticipate is they'll have diminished speech. They'll use relatively few words, and the words that they tend to use will lack a lot of meaning. So instead of saying, hey, there's a guy in the blue shirt sitting over there in a chair, obviously most everybody in the room, you don't even need to look down here, you've got an idea already what it was I was talking about. If I have an injury to this area, I might say, guy, chair. And that's about all you're going to get out of me because I've lost this motor control over fluent speech. Okay, so those are the structures that I want you to look at with respect to the frontal lobe. Now, let's shift, how about, into the occipital lobe here. And remember, oh, there it looks like maybe that's about where our parieto occipital sulcus is and our preoccipital notch is going to be down here somewhere. So if we draw that line and everything posterior to that, that's going to be in the occipital lobe. And you're looking at this and you're going, oh dear, there are a lot of squiggles in there. Well, that's fine because I am such a nice person. I don't want you to worry too much about those things. If you just call them the lateral occipital gyri and sulci, that's fine for my purposes. You don't need to give a name to all this stuff. Interesting things there. Uh, what was the occipital lobe involved in? Vision. Okay, very good. It's involved in vision. If you damage a lot of like, stuff back here right on the pole, yes, you will go blind. If you damage the stuff a little more anterior to that, you won't go blind, but you'll have trouble recognizing things. I can see stuff, but I just don't recognize it anymore. Or I have difficulty telling you where it is. So there are some interesting features there, higher order processors for visual stimuli in that area. But that's good enough for the anatomy on the occipital lobe and the lateral surface for now. Parietal lobe. Let's travel posterior to our central sulcus. And the first thing we're going to run into is a post-central gyrus. Again, he's kind of the somatosensory complement of the precentral gyrus because whereas our precentral gyrus was interested in motor control of particular parts of your body, post-central gyrus, that's interested in somatosensation from particular parts of your body again. Somatosensation from your mouth and your face, somatosensation from your hand and your arm. Now, some other structures here. We should be able to see a superior parietal lobule up on the dorsal and medial surface. Remember the other day when we had one of our good friends drop down here and he closed his eyes and I placed a key in his hand and he told us exactly what the object was? The area in the parietal lobe that was vital for him recognizing what that object was, was the superior parietal lobule. That's where he had stored all of his memories for what stuff feels like. And if he injures that area, he may still be able to feel stuff that we put in his hand. He just can't tell us what they are anymore. So he's lost those memories. Let's travel downstairs a little bit. And we see 
as we travel in sort of the more posterior portion of the inferior parietal lobule, we see a structure called the angular gyrus. Definitely pay attention to the angular gyrus. Make a note of him. You get a bizarre array of deficits in relation to injuries of the angular gyrus, but one of the things that will fail, quite likely, is your capacity to read. Strangely enough, your capacity to read is going to be disturbed. What that basically means is the written forms of all of the words that you know are going to be stored in the angular gyrus, typically on the left hemisphere. And then, perhaps a bit more mysterious, just travel a little bit anterior to that area, just around the other side of our lateral fissure. We find a supramarginal gyrus, and maybe something to note about that, maybe involved in your conscious processing of your vestibular information. Left over here, the lateral surface of the temporal lobe, there are three gyri to note here. You've got a superior, middle, and inferior temporal gyrus. The one that you most particularly need to worry about right now is the superior temporal gyrus. That area, vital for hearing, but it also stores memories for the sounds that you know. In some cases, it could be something like, okay, if let's say you hear a dog barking outside, you're going to go, oh, somebody's dog is barking outside because you have a record in memory of that kind of a sound and you associate it with these little furry animals. So you have a, a memory for the sound that dogs make. But you also have memories for words, the sounds of words. And that area is very close to the angular gyrus, tight connections between the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe there. So obviously the sounds that words make and the written forms of those words are tightly linked in together in a functional sense. And once again, if you injure that area, then expect deficits of language. But in this case, instead of having problems producing the words, you have trouble understanding them. You may hear them, but not understand them. Oh, what the heck is all this? This does not look good. Okay, when I walked in today, how many thought, oh yeah, there's the guy, he's not so bad. Uh, one guy, thank you, sir, thank you. Oh, two, lovely guy up there at the back. Two people in the room thought I wasn't such a bad guy. Your mind is about to be changed. This is a nasty-looking thing. Remember the other day we, we saw this picture over here on the right, and we said that cerebral cortex overwhelmingly is going to consist of one, two, three, four, five, six characteristic layers of cells. But I also cautioned you that depending where on the surface of the brain you looked, the relative thicknesses of these different layers was going to shift around. Now, you can thank Dr. Broadman because Dr. Broadman had no life. And what he would do is he would go and he'd scrape off a little shaving of cortex and he'd look at it under the microscope and say, is it the same as this one or is it different? If it was the same, no problem. If it was different, he would go to that area that he made the section between the two areas and he would draw a line. And then after he drew the line all the way around one area that was homogeneous, but distinct from the neighboring area, he would give it a number. The numbers are completely arbitrary. They mean nothing. But look at the numbering system that he came up with. Okay, let's start here at the front. Okay, there's area 11, 10, 9. Things are going well so far. But we got 8, 6, 4, 3, 1, 2, 5, 7, 19. There are 50-some areas, depending on the map that's drawn. 
these maps are cytoarchitectural. That means they refer explicitly to the appearance of the cellular layers. However, in some of these cases, these little areas that he's drawn are going to be clinically significant. And we'll tend to show you which ones those are that we're worried about. So please do not tell your friends who aren't here, do not memorize this map. But there are specific places that I do want you to pay attention to. So, as an example, area 4, that's the one, if you damage that, you go weak. Area 312, if you damage that, you lose somatosensation. If you damage area 17, you go blind. So we'll tell you which ones you have to worry about. Please do not try to memorize this map. You'll just hurt yourselves. Okay. Another point with respect to the temporal lobe here. If we do kind of dig down inside a little bit, we are going to find a structure. It's called the planum temporal. That corresponds coincidentally to area 22, which makes up quite a bit of the temporal lobe here, superior temporal gyrus. And that is a definitely a very important place for the processing of speech sounds, particularly if you're dealing with the left hemisphere. You'll have the structure in both hemispheres, but usually in the left, from almost all of us, the left side is going to process the speech sounds. Okay. Relax for a second. So we had decided earlier that this was an MRI. And now what I'd like you to do, if you wouldn't mind, could you please tell me whether it's T1 weighted or T2? Okay, let's find out what our MRI experts, our team of experts think about this. And we got about three quarters of you thinking T1 and a quarter of you thinking T2. What made you, most of you think T1? Eyeballs. What about the eyeballs? They're dark. They're dark eyeballs. That's correct. What else is dark in here? The CSF looks like it's dark, so that's why I would be leaning towards... Uh, T1 weighted, and then also notice how much structure is visible there as well. That's perhaps another cue. So I like T1. Pretty nicely done. Okay, inferior surface here. We looked at the inferior surface already. I'll focus in on a few little targets for you. Remember we talked a little bit about the ventral surface, the frontal lobe, and how it's vulnerable to damage because of almost abrasive forces from the basal skull, the anterior cranial fossa. Most of this structure here is going to be related. Well, uh, again, we'll just sort of lump them all together. We can call them the orbital gyri. All that stuff in there, those are orbital gyri or gyri. Uh, those areas in there, the name is given because that's, they sit just right above the eyeballs. There's an indentation actually on the brain there because the eye sockets are just found uh, below that. And back in the days when they did barbaric psychosurgery, that was actually the surgical entry point for lesioning the frontal lobe. What they do is they just kind of pop the eyelid open here and they'd stick a little weapon and slide it past the eyeball, punch it. They'd kind of do something like that. 
and they'd punch the weapon inside the frontal lobe and then they'd stir it around a bit. And they didn't exactly know what it was they were doing, but they thought this was a great cure for mental illness. Uh, in reality, if they were very lucky, what they did is they slowed down motivation. So what would happen is the mental patient, instead of being a very busy mental patient, would be sitting in a chair not doing anything. However, because they didn't really know what was going on in there, they sometimes missed. And in fact, they quite often missed. And when you damage these ventral structures down here, I don't know if you know much about these ventral structures, but what were some of the things that your, your mother was very worried about when you were a little wee person? Don't touch that. Share your toys. Don't pull your sister's hair. Oh, don't do that in front of your grandmother. Those kinds of things. All of your good manners, all of your social graces get wired into this area. So what happens? What do you notice about people who hit their heads and suffer injuries to this area? Their personalities change. So it's not unusual. It, you know, uh, who has a, like a, a wonderful, kindly little grandmother? Uh, maybe she, she went to church every Sunday and she always said nice things about everybody. And then one day, grandmother knows words that you don't even know. And what may have happened is that grandmother may have had a stroke affecting this area and it's relieved her of these social inhibitions so now she's impulsive and vulgar. So that is a thing to watch for in cases of head injury. Okay, so those are the orbital gyri. You'll see the olfactory bulb is sitting here, just medial to the olfactory bulb. We have a straight gyrus or gyrus rectus. There's our temporal lobe down below. Here's a little structure you might want to note. This is a clinically significant structure dangling off the medial aspect of the limbic lobe. The, the, the gyrus here itself is called the parahippocampal gyrus, and it is going to be surrounding our hippocampus. But take a look. There's a little, little tiny hook here, or uncus. There's his name right down there. And we're going to bother you quite a bit with the uncus. Now, the reason we'll bother you quite a bit with the uncus is not because there's anything horribly significant going on inside the uncus that affects you moment to moment. On the other hand, what could happen? Remember our guy who had the epidural hemorrhage? He had the big mass of blood up here laterally. Well, what happens if this thing gets big enough is it pushes the brain. And when it pushes the brain, the uncus pushes on the midbrain. So what will happen is you may be dealing with a patient who's got this big expanding hematoma it pushes on cranial nerve 3, and if you do happen to peek inside his eye, you'll notice that the eye is suddenly dilated. The pupil is suddenly dilated. And that'll be a good indication then that the brain is getting up and galloping across to the opposite side of the skull, and that's a very, very bad thing, and death could be imminent. So that's called herniation of the uncus, that phenomenon. And we will bother you with that phenomenon quite a lot. Now let's look down here a little more closely. There's our uncus. And nearby, we actually have some strange cortex. We've got some cortex here that doesn't necessarily obey the six-layer rule. There's some cortex in here that is actually three-layered. So here's this little area called the piriform cortex. But we also have some six-layered cortex in the area as well. This cortex is sort of uh, primitively related to olfaction. Now, it's not so much that this area helps you to smell things and go, oh, that's garlic and that's vinegar and, and this is lavender or whatever your favorite smells happen to be. 
It, it's more the case, this is almost a defensive area here. Uh, let's suppose that you have been exposed to some food, you've eaten some food, and then several hours later, oh, oh dear, and you spend the evening in the bathroom. Now what's happened is you've been exposed to food with particular odors, and within about 24 hours you got sick. And this area, these structures down in here, are very good at making this association between the smell of something and you getting sick. So it's, con it's called conditioned taste aversion, and that's one of the functions of this area down below. Okay, looks like we've actually got about a minute and a half left to go, so probably what we could do is just save uh, this next objective for Monday, I guess. Is that correct? Okay, let's do that, and I think Dr. Haig and I will be joining you in about 10 minutes for some IMCQ, so we'll see you in about 10 minutes.